So I'm going to start with Mike to uh, give Dr. Johnson a little, a few minutes here to uh, catch his <laughs> breath. Um, so first of all, now Mike and I have known each other, um, how long have we known each other? Summer and I have been married for 28 years, so. At least that long. At least that long. Uh, so Mike has been a tremendous friend and uh, mentor, discipler, encourager through all of my ministry, really. And uh, always, always been one of those that you could pick up the phone and call and uh, he will shoot straight. Uh, no, no doubt about that. If you, uh, I'm looking forward to what he'll be sharing with our students and parents tonight, and uh, I know I know that's going to be good. Um, so if you uh, if you can think of somebody uh, to be here tonight to invite, they still have time to be here tonight. He's speaking on Jesus and Snapchat tonight, so uh, that's that's going to be good. How long? Did you serve as a youth pastor before you went to North Greenville to serve in their youth ministry department? 24 years. 24 years as a youth pastor. Now, how long have you been at North Greenville? 20 years. 20 years. So. 44. 44 years of youth ministry. Knowledge and experience. We hope. We hope. In that time, um, I know you've seen a lot of things come and go. You've seen a lot of trends come and go. You've ministered. I know you've ministered to students in very, very difficult situations. You've seen uh, some very uh, tremendous uh, breakthrough situations. I know that a lot of people have uh, given their lives to Christ, gone into the ministry uh, under your leadership, but through all of that, ministering to students in youth groups and in the college setting, what would you say would you see as, over those years, what are some promising developments in student ministry and college life, and, and what are some troublesome developments? The most encouraging thing that I see right now and in the last, let's say, decade, would be the emphasis on the family in youth ministry <clears throat> and incorporating those together rather than separate. And the thing that would be the most troubling would, would be two things. One is what Dr. J. Uh, mentioned in, in his and Will in both of their speaking opportunities is the, the troubling thing is the emphasis of feeling over thinking. Feeling over the word. Uh, that's just troubling. It, it's so crippling and prevalent uh, today. And the other one that is in my mind equal is the lack of a biblical worldview with the students that come under our tutelage. I, I, my conservative estimate, and, and most of my colleagues say it's higher, but at least 50% of the students that I get that are called to youth ministry or pursuing that don't have a, have a, a biblical worldview. They have a worldview and they think it's biblical, but when you press them on it, it's what they feel rather than what the Word says. So those are the troubling and the mm -hmm. encouraging things for me. Uh, just a follow-up question with that. How, um, I don't, how, how much of an influence would you say uh, Vody Balcom's work on the family helped engineer the incorporation of family in the youth ministry or what, what what were the big influences that helped uh youth ministers begin to make that emphasis in southern baptist circles it was richard ross okay that teaches youth ministry at southwestern seminary he was the primary mover and shaker pusher of that uh emphasis 
within the convention. Uh, outside of that, in evangelical youth ministry would be Jim Burns uh, in California and um, in particular, and uh, Karen Jones who teaches at Huntington College but is a Southwestern PhD Southern Baptist. Um, those folks push the buttons. Yeah. So I think this is really interesting because we have so compartmentalized ministry that um, we don't we don't even think in those terms anymore. So we have children's ministry and we have student ministry and then we have you know young couple and and we do the be we do everything we can to keep everybody separate. And Sunday night, this coming Sunday night, we start discipleship and we got everybody separate. We got everybody everywhere. What is for you, what, uh, you know, what's been so encouraging and promising about incorporating family into youth ministry? One would be scripture, that the command of God in Deuteronomy is for mm. mom and dad to be the main disciples of their children, not me as a youth pastor, but for me as a youth pastor to come alongside mom and dad and help them do what God's called them to do and be a help with that rather than a hindrance to that in the church. Uh, but the, the uh, uh, extreme example of family ministry is the Vody Balkum and those guys right. where there is no nursery, there is no children's church, there is no age group division at all. Everyone comes into the worship arena right. together. Uh, the, the problem I have with that is it ignores the culture I live in. The mm -hmm. mom, dad, divorce, grandparents raising grandchildren, um, lost parents, saved kids that come to a church, to a youth ministry, and mom and dad are out to lunch spiritually. Uh, they don't fit in to a family-only church. Right. And so in our culture, I think we have to be salt and light in that vein uh, and add to the emphasis of for the Christian families to grow together uh, and not separate, and for the church to put the youth over here and the, everybody else over here, and never shall the two get together. I, I'm not sure that that's a biblical example. Right. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Johnson. Let me let me speak to what my, uh, uh, wherever Mr. Landrum picked that up. He's done it for years and years and does it very effectively. And that's one of the things when we have students, because sometimes students come talk to me as dean of the College of Christian Studies and they're interested in youth ministry, which he's over. If he's not there to talk to them, I sort of have to or get to. I don't mind doing it. I'd rather him do it. But uh, sometimes I don't have that option. But um, that's one of the things I tell them. I said, you know, the, um, at the heart of this, because we, we even have an entire course Right, well, I fit the name of it, on, on, on that one thing. Now, it's, it's, um, it's not that they do it in that course and he doesn't teach it any, that any time of the time. It's, that's a philosophy that's integrated in everything that he teaches. But there's an entire course that's, that's just on that. And I would also agree, you know, basically the, um, what we're seeing is a lack of people thinking. Uh, Thomas Sowell, I don't know if you read any of his things, that's African-American economist, uh, but I read a statement of his a while back. He was taking off on a book that was written, an educational book written back like in the 1960s, I think, uh, critiquing the educational system. It's called Why Johnny Can't Read. Um, and Thomas Sowell said the problem is not that Johnny can't read. Uh, he said the problem is not even that Johnny can't think. He said the problem is Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. Johnny confuses thinking with feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, and, and part of that's what I was talking about as an extreme example, mm -hmm. you know, this is how I feel. And so uh, anytime a student writes, well, I, I read this, but I feel like, I, I, I don't care how you feel. Tell me what you think. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. And so, yes, we are certainly seeing a difference there. And I think that's why people don't have a worldview. And I think when, he's, when he says they don't have a Christian worldview, it's not like they're out in left field on everything. The problem is because they don't think they have a quasi-Christian worldview or half-Christian worldview, 
But they get off on that because they're not consistent and don't think. And so that's why you end up not talking with them very long and you end up finding out their, their thinking on this is not I mean, they believe in the Christian God. They believe the Bible's the word of God. But it comes thinking through these issues, just like some of them we're talking about, they just tend not to think. And that is a cultural problem. Uh, and it is, and I'm sure some of that will be addressed by Mr. Landerman and his th thing later. Social media's got a lot to do with that. But that yeah. is a problem. Education is all about thinking. It's not about feeling. And that does create a problem. Mm -hmm. So, Thank you. I wanted to go back to uh, what you just shared with us. And uh, you were talking about the gender issue. And, of course, that is a huge issue for us. The homosexual issue is a big issue for us. We, I think we would all agree uh, that that's... And those things are exploding over the past five years, five to ten years. But um, I wanted to hit on something else that I have I've also noticed because we tend to hit those big, you know, quote unquote, cultural or worldly things. Um, but I've noticed a decline among our, in our heterosexual ethics and um, even with, within our church. Um, and when I say church, I don't just mean this church. Mm -hmm. I mean the church at large, but, um, you know, we, uh, I've, I've heard this term used. We've, we've come to, uh, have some acceptable sins in, in America, some things that we used to not tolerate or used to wouldn't, you know, um, were, were absolutely known to be wrong, but now it seems just to be accepted. And um, so one of those would be things like cohabitation, intimacy before marriage seems to be absolutely normalized even within the church. Or um, what, what are your, are your thoughts? What, have you seen that trend? Are y'all experiencing that, you know, on, with, with college students? And what, where yes, do we go I, with that? I, I think without question, that is a trend. Uh, I think it's part of the same problem. Uh, it's Because, again, when we say, I'll decide for myself, I'll decide for myself, the issue that I was addressing was that one pressing one on gender issues. But I, I did make the statement when I talked about Genesis 3 there and that first sin that that becomes paradigmatic for all sin. You know, I know what God says about cohabitation. But I really don't feel like that's wrong. And see, there's that word again. You know, I don't feel like it's wrong. And um, e even though I, I dealt with that, really, there's folks at the school. Mr. Lane probably deals with that more than I do, but we do have counselors at the school that deal with that more often. I dealt with it more in the pastorate. But I would have people. I had a man that came to me one time. Of course, this was years ago. It's the same principle, but it, it's, it's worse today. And he said, I want to come to you. I want you to be the first one to know. I didn't want you to hear it somewhere else. You know, I plan to divorce my wife. I know what you're going to say. But he said, I have prayed about this, and I, I feel like it's okay. And I said, well, first of all, God doesn't care how you feel. <laughs> okay? Like I said, one thing God left out of the Bible was your opinion. Okay? He didn't ask that. I'm just going to show you what the Bible says. And then you can tell me how you feel, and then you can tell me which one you're going to do, and you're going to have to face God with the answer. Uh, but the, the question is, yes, there is more of it. And I, I do think we, we do put more of an emphasis on the transgender, the homosexual, than we do the cohabitation um, and the intimacy before marriage. And I think the reason for that is, and it, I'm not saying that's an excuse for it, I think this is the reason, is we at least look at that as being um, normal behavior. In other words, intimacy between a male and a female, that's norm, That's the way God, that doesn't violate God's um, norm of how he created male and female. So we don't tend to see that as bad, but it, 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 it's still in conflict with God's plan. You know, the homosexuality of the transgender is, you know, going in the face of nature. And so we tend to treat that differently. And it is different, but we tend to tr treat it less seriously. 
And the fact is, both of them are sins, both of them are destructive, mm -hmm. but it, it, it certainly is a trend, and I think it's still tied up with the whole thing of the emphasis of today, it's infiltrating the church on the self. You know, I make the decisions based on how I feel. I love this girl. She loves me. I think that's okay. Instead of doing the thinking like we're talking about, thinking biblically and having a biblical worldview. So, yeah, I think your observation is exactly right. It is there. And uh, I think we've noticed this, too. I don't know if you're familiar with Chris, uh, Christopher Wan, who was also a former homosexual, mm. uh, homosexual came to the Lord, mm. and uh, he wrote the book Holy Sexuality, mm. which he, he makes the kind of the same thing that Rosario made, is that heterosexuality wasn't the answer to his homosexuality. Mm. The answer to his homosexuality was the gospel. Yeah. And when, when the gospel, when... when when Christ transformed his heart, then his life transformed. Yep. But so I, I think in that that we, we often think that way, the, the answer for homosexuality is heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. And so then when we have these, like you said, these heterosexual sins, we don't think of them as, as bad as. Mm -hmm. But yet the scripture says, um, you know, they're... Um, in, uh, is it Galatians 6, uh, I believe? Um, I'll look it up in a minute just to make sure. But it says, you know, do, do not be de deceived about the, the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and it mentions homosexuality mm -hmm. and it mentions adultery. Mm -hmm. It mentions both homosexual sin and heterosexual sin as sins, uh, you know, lifestyle sins that will keep you out of heaven, that right. you're, you're not a believer if your life is characterized by that. So um, my issue is we, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of dangerous, eternally dangerous sin in the church that we're not even addressing. And because uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're addressing what everybody out there does, but, but not what we're doing. And uh, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, and I think that's why when we read the parable of the prodigal son, we actually stop before it's over. You know, we read that parable about this kid that goes off and does these, all of these terrible sins, we would call them, you know. And then he comes back, and then he gets restored, and then we stop reading but the very first sentence of that parable says a man had two sons, not one. So the story is not about one son, it's about two of them. Uh, and at the end of the story, one of the sons was back in the fellowship with the father and the other one was not. And I think one reason we conveniently overlook that second son is he is generally committing, seen as committing those kinds of sins that you're referring to as acceptable sins. Pride, arrogance, lack of love for his brother and this kind of thing. But in the end, notice which one of them was back. And so I think it's the same issue there. That, um, uh, you know, we, by nature, and this is why I think that prayer is so important to pray, that David prayed, search my heart, O God, search me and know my heart. Because our tendency as human beings is to see and make judgments on the sins that people are committing that are not the ones we commit. Mm -hmm. Our sins and the people sort of like us, they're the acceptable ones that we tend to overlook. Uh, Jerry Bridges, by the way, the late Jerry Bridges got an excellent book, I think, called Acceptable Sins or something mm -hmm. like that, where he's got a chapter or something on it. It's pretty painful. You know, I, I wish he was talking about adultery and, and, and um, uh, homosexuality and, and uh, drug abuse, whatever, all these kinds, but those aren't in there. It's the kind that goes to that second son, probably where most of us would, would likely be. So 1 Corinthians 6, um, 9, <coughs> 10, and 11 is uh, the verse I was trying to think of just a while ago, and that's a key verse that I've used quite often to help people think through 
salvation issues in regards to our ethics. So, um, Mike, going back then to the emphasis on family, uh, youth ministry with an emphasis on family, um, how do you advise parents and grandparents on, um, in terms of discipling and preparing our children for when they leave our home? You know, Dr. Johnson mentioned in his message, uh, you know, they, they go out into the world and then all of a sudden, they're thinking completely different about these things. What should we be doing to prepare them? Three things come to mind. One, I would suggest to you to be real. Be the same person when you close the door at home mm -hmm. as you are when you walk outside the door mm -hmm. and leave home. Mm -hmm. Be the same person in the pulpit you are at home. Be the same person on the ball field you are at home, in the grocery store, etc. Because your kids are going to know whether you're faking it or not. They're going to know if you really believe and live what you verbalize out there to everyone else, and they think you're all that in a box of chocolates for Jesus, but the kid knows the real person, or the spouse knows. Uh, and uh, Paul David Tripp has written a great book to help those of us in ministry identify and help us be real when we shut the door at home. Yeah. A second thing would be teach them to think. Mm. Um, the problem with that for most parents is, as a youth pastor, they don't want me to teach their kid to think. <laughs> they want me to teach them to believe what they believe. And it's dangerous to teach them to think because they might make a decision to believe differently than mom and dad believe about alcohol or about salvation or about whatever subject. Uh, but teach them to think. Help them to think. And what goes along with both of those is reading. You read encourage them to read. My students, if they were to actually read every book that I asked them to read, would read 33 books for me in 11 youth ministry courses. Which on one hand isn't that many, but that's more than most of them have ever read. Mm -hmm. Teach your kids to read. You read uh, in order to be a better prepared servant and help them seek the truth from the purveyor of truth, not from their feelings and what somebody else may influence them uh, to say, think, or do. So I would, those are three that came to mind first. Yeah, those are good. Um, Dr. Johnson, one of the um, common challenges to Christianity is the presence of evil and suffering. So people reason, well, if what you, if the God that you're talking about, if the God of the Bible really exists, <clears throat> why is all of this unnecessary, you know, tragedy, disaster, suffering, uh, you know, um, why starvation, you know, why is there so much evil and suffering if God is all powerful and he's all loving, then he would stop all of this. So either he's not all powerful and he can't <laughs> stop it, or he's not loving. He don't really care. Mm. What would you say? That's Mike's question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Read the Bible. <laughs> uh, it would take a long time to go into much detail about that, but I certainly will try to hit the high spots. Uh, I think the first thing you have to do in dealing with those kinds of questions is remember that various people hold different worldviews. That's a very important concept. A person's worldview is the views that they have, and the most important one that's going to affect their worldview more than anything is, is there a guide or not? I mean, that, that one question is going to affect more than anything. But people have a worldview, 
And of course, Christianity is not only the means and way of salvation, it is a worldview. I, I remind my students, the first verse in the Bible is not John 3.16. <laughs> okay. The first verse in the Bible is God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Christianity is a worldview that tells us how we are supposed to think about the major questions of life. Is there a God? What's he like? What determines what's right and what's wrong? Okay. Uh, what's wrong with the world? Everybody knows something's wrong. Okay. Every worldview is got. How do you solve that? Okay. The answers that a person gives to that question is basically their worldview. Uh, in our culture, there are basically two worldviews that are prominent. One of them is still the basic Christian theistic worldview. There's a God, he created the universe, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-loving, he holds us accountable, uh, he sent Jesus, all, all that's part of, a, of the Christian worldview. Uh, on the other hand, the naturalist worldview is saying there's not a God. Well, folks, if that's the case, then they have to answer the same questions that the Christian does. They just can't give the same answers, <laughs> okay? So they still got to answer the question, is there a God? They say, no, okay? They've got to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? Well, they're certainly not going to say, well, we're in rebellion against God because they don't believe in God, okay? When you ask them, what's the basis of right and wrong, they're not going to tell you, well, God decides that. because So my point is they've got to give their own answers to all of those questions. And most naturalists don't realize that. They think they just ask a Christian these questions and you, get, you can't answer them. What they don't realize is they've got to answer them too. <laughs> okay? mm. They've got to give some kind. And so the same thing is true with the problem of evil. <clears throat> Christians are going to have to answer that problem the best they can. The problem is the naturalist is going to have to answer it too. And the problem is they're not able to, what I'll try to show you is that Christians can actually do it a lot better than they can. And here's the reason. Um, when, when, when you ask, if somebody asks me, you know, why is there so much evil in the world? I tell them the first thing, let me tell you, I'll answer that question. That's a tough one. If you can answer an easier one for me, I'll give you an easy one. You answer the easy one, I'll try to answer the hard one. Okay, that's great. Yes, yeah, okay. Can you give me an example of something evil in the world? Well, boy, that's easy. You know, here, here's this mass murder. That, well, I said, okay, but wait a minute. Why was that evil? And I don't want you to give a Christian explanation. Tell me based on your naturalistic worldview, there's no God. There's no set therefore right and wrong. So before you can even charge that there's an evil problem, you've got to tell me what standard you're using to determine that something is evil. Now, folks, the Christian doesn't have that problem. God's the standard. But if you're not a Christian, you're stuck with the answer, trying to answer, what is it that makes something evil? Mm. And my point is, they can't even raise the problem with evil without borrowing off the Christian worldview that there is mm. a such thing as evil. So that's the first thing I want to do is say, this is two different worldviews. And then I would say from that, we have to understand that first to understand the rest of my explanation. They've got to answer this, and they've got to answer it on their naturalistic presuppositions. Okay? <clears throat> my point is, they can't do it. Okay? They can't even raise the problem. that The best they can show is there are things that will happen that we don't like. I said, mm -hmm. well, this isn't the problem of we don't like this. This is the problem of evil. If you can't show me something is evil and why it's evil in your worldview, we don't have anything to talk about. But I will then say, from a Christian worldview, how are we to understand that problem? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> first of all, we do not deny anything the pastor said. <clears throat> God is indeed all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. <clears throat> then how do we explain what happens here? For us to explain everything in detail, first of all, we would have to know everything, and, and we don't. So you have to answer it based on what we do know. <clears throat> and what is it that we do know? that God's all-loving, all-powerful, and, and uh, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, uh, benevolent, can do all that. So we, we don't compromise that. <clears throat> okay, so based on the Christian worldview, how do we understand evil? I think we understand evil by saying whether or not we know how it happens in every situation, God allows something evil to happen 
because his intention is to make something better come out of it than what there would have been. <clears throat> Every act of you say, well, we don't always see that. But here's the good thing, is God does give us enough examples of it in the Bible to show us that's what he is doing. <clears throat> okay, for instance, the book of Job. Uh, well, I can use that. I want to go to the, the, to the story of Joseph. Yeah, here's Joseph. He's a guy basically living right, and look what happens to him. If anybody's got a right to raise the problem of evil, it's him. Lord, I tried to do everything that was right. Why am I in prison? You know, why am I having false accusations? Why am I the one sold away from the family? You know, well, put yourself in that situation. Job, I and mean, Joseph could have said the same thing we would have said when evil things happen. Well, evidently there's not a God. Evidently he doesn't know about me or he doesn't care about me, but that's not what he did. He said, I believe God's going to do something good out of this evil. And when you get to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, at the end of it all, that's exactly what Joseph says to his brothers. He said, you sold me into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for the good. So there are questions that we, now that, that, the problem is we look at things and say, but I don't understand what good's going to come out of that. Well, God didn't tell us in each situation what good's going to come out of it. Uh, God has an eternity at it, it, it it, it his hand to make all these wrongs come out to be rights. And in the Christian worldview, the Christian worldview basically says God has a reason for it. <clears throat> and by the way, the Christian worldview also explains to us why we don't understand. You go, why don't we understand all that? Well, the Christian worldview answers that too. That's because our thoughts aren't God's thoughts and our ways aren't his. Okay? As the Christian worldview is, we'll never understand God in our little peanut brain, you know, even if he explained it to us. And one of the things I try to tell people, I, I say, you, how many of you remember when you were children, and both, most of us are older folks here, I'm not talking to many young people, you remember going to your parents and saying, can I do so and so? And they said, absolutely not. And you thought, well, I... I mean, what's, what's wrong with that, you know? And so you ask me, what, what's wrong? And they explain to you. And you remember what you said? You are so wise, mama. <laughs> I just can't believe. I can't wait till I'm your... No, you didn't. Below, well beneath your breath, you were saying, that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard. Well, folks, if God was to tell us why he does what he does, we would still say, that sounds stupid to me. And God says... I know it should sound stupid to you because you've got a little pea brain and I know everything in the world and I know what my plans and purposes are. <clears throat> so the bottom line is the Christian worldview says God allows bad things to happen because he's going to make good things come out of them. Now, folks, here's, here's the, 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 I think the, what sums up the Christian worldview. What is the greatest act of injustice? The worst thing that ever happened in all of human history. Folks, that was the crucifixion of Jesus. That was the worst thing that ever, uh, you know, only the devil could have thought of that. <laughs> you know, that was the worst thing. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the best thing that God ever did? The crucifixion of Jesus. Because that's the ground of our whole hope and the whole redemption process. So note, God took the worst thing that ever happened and made it the best thing that ever happened. And if he can actually do that, he can take anything in your life or mine that's not as bad, but yet make it good. He's given us interest. Now, the, th the naturalistic worldview says we don't really have any answer. Now, some of them will tell me I don't like your answer. And what I tell them is, well, I like my answer better than I like your non-answer. Okay? Uh, we understand the biblical view, worldview completely. And when you do, the problem of evil is not a problem for the Christian. It's a problem for the naturalist. The Christian says there is an explanation for it. And God's going to make things right. Okay? And he determines what's right and what's wrong. And he's given us enough examples and folks sometimes you can even see it in your own life look at your own life in some of those cases now you can't do it in every case and I can't do it but I guarantee you I can look back at some things in my life and say that was evil that was terrible 
God, where were you? And 30 years later, I'm saying, oops, I see. Well, that's how I deal. That's what I think. The problem of evil is not a problem for the Christian. It's a problem for the unbeliever. Hmm. That's good. Thank you. Now you see why I enjoyed his classes. (laughs) So, Mike, what I want to do now is uh, Dr. Johnson was talking, uh, addressing this problem of evil with like a debate setting or such. So in your years of ministry, I know you've dealt with students, parents and parents who have faced tragedy, so uh, faced death or suffering or evil. And um, what do you do when, when, you, when, you, when a student sits you know, down in your office and life has fallen apart or when you have to go sit and talk with those parents? How do we minister? You run through the house, down the hall to the bedroom, mm-hmm. on your knees, slide to the bed and holler, God, <laughs> help. Mm-hmm. Um, From the Christian perspective, they trusted him to save them, but they have a hard time trusting his sovereignty. Mm -hmm. They have a hard time trusting that he is capable, able to be God. He is and I'm not. And helping those believing folks deal with that. And many times the end result of that is 20 years later, a parent, a grandparent, an adult worker in the church with the students that I'm working with still is mad at God for taking grandma, Mm. for that miscarriage, Mm. for that car wreck. And they've never gotten peace with God. Mm. He's still the bad guy because he did this. And helping them work through that to a more healthy place. For the non-believer, what was said earlier, they need the gospel. Uh, That's the answer for them. And in Southern Baptist Youth Ministry circles, for the last 40 years, baptisms go this way. Not once, but every year. There's a trend for some ungodly reason among youth pastors that they don't share the gospel. I'm grateful that my youth pastor shares it every night, every Mm. Wednesday night. Mm. At the end, if it's not the totality, he brings it to the end and gets Mm. to the gospel. You need to talk to somebody, come see me Mm. as soon as we are finished, or one of these adult leaders. They need the gospel. Mm. And we need to continually offer that mm-hmm. opportunity mm-hmm. Uh, yes. to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, crisis issues, I teach a course on this, the whole idea of crisis, not from the good and evil perspective, theological, that's for the, these guys, uh, but from the standpoint of how do you help students and families deal with crisis. Uh, and one of the things a youth pastor has to know is when it's over your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a spiritual counselor, not a professional counselor. I don't have a shingle on the wall that says I'm certified and trained. I don't get to put on my Superman cape and go fix problems. Hmm. I need to send them to somebody who's a believer and knows how to help folks in those needs that are over my head Hmm. and know when to refer them to professional help. But it's a spiritual problem. I can help them work through that. Mm-hmm. It's a blessing, and it's also a very big challenge. Yeah. And that's an excellent point that I would want to make, because Mike sort of said, I deal with it in a different way than this, uh, and that is true. The, the sort of presentation that I gave is, is the person that I have to deal with sometimes that's basically the atheist that comes in and wants to talk and wants to bring these things up. And that's what I call the philosophical problem of evil. Okay? You're dealing with philosophical problems. What Mike has to deal with, and, and I do too, but what he's, is that when a person, when, a, when, a, when one of his students comes in and says, 
my mother just died. You know, I mean, that's a test of my faith. He doesn't say, well, let me give you three arguments that prove that God <laughs> exists. That, that is not what that person needs. No, okay? sir. You have to understand, is it an intellectual problem that they're having? That's what I was dealing with. And there are people that are at that level. But there are people at the existential level. They're experiencing evil at that time. And, and it's, they're not in unbelief, but they're having some doubt. And, and that person doesn't need to hear the presentation that I gave you a few moments ago. What they need you to do is put your arm around them and tell them you love them and you understand and you're going to be with them through it. And that's dealing with that it, it, on that level. And we always need to distinguish what is it that we're really dealing with. Uh, there's that existential aspect of it. When somebody's going through something evil, they just may need somebody to be there and say, I understand and I'm with you. And we all have to do that at some time or another. All right, one more for you, Dr. Johnson. The Bible says, do not judge. <laughs> Are you sure my name's on all this? <laughs> and uh, so there might have been some, uh, you know, <clears throat> ears. Some, someone could have slipped in and heard your message a while ago and said, boy, he's really judging. Hmm. So how do we as believers speak the truth in love and yet not judge. There's a lot, that's another issue that there's a lot of ways to, initiate, to start that uh, initially to deal with it. Uh, one thing that I a lot of tell them a lot of times, but I don't want to have to come out and explain further, I want to say, oh no, I'm not judging you. God did, and I'm just telling you what he said. <laughs> okay? I mean, that's, that's one way to do it. I, I'm not judging you. Listen, my, my opinion is not any better than yours. <laughs> But I'm just going to tell you what God said. Okay? His opinion is in the end the only one that matters. So that's one way that I, I deal with it. <clears throat> but Jesus does say there in, in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. <clears throat> and what I have found through the years is that's the only Bible verse that some people know. Uh, <clears throat> and as soon as you do something and as soon as a Christian raises the issue that that's wrong, they quote, the, you know, if you don't believe that, ask them sometimes, say, how many other Bible verses do you know? Or, is that in the Bible? Tell me where that's found. They don't know. They just, <laughs> they just know that's a good way to shut your mouth. That's what they're doing. Tupac said it. What's that? Tupac said it. He doesn't know who that is. No, no. He <laughs> he's the culture guy. He has to explain these things that to me all the time. These are these two comedians on TV. Really? Yeah, so I don't get any of that. I heard y'all evidently did. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they take that verse, and it's the same trouble. It's the trouble with taking verses out of context. Uh, because it's the same. You can actually go down several verses in the same chapter. And, and Jesus says, ask, and it will be given unto you. Okay? And I just asked the person, man, have you ever asked God for something that you didn't get? And you know what the answer to that is. Of course you did. And I'm saying, well, that's not what that verse says. That verse says, ask and it'll be given to you. So why did you not get it? You must not have asked. There's no I asked. I said, I know. The problem is you took that verse out of its context. Hmm. <clears throat> you got to read the rest of the Bible, what it says about those kinds of things, where it clearly says there's some reasons you're not going to get what you asked for. If you didn't get it, you might ought to look and read the Bible, what it says about some of those things. <clears throat> um, so they've taken the Bible that con out of context. <clears throat> Usually what you will find out if you're misunderstanding a verse is to look at the context. Uh, the answer, a lot of times, if you'll just back up about three verses and start reading, it, it'll straighten itself out. Or if you'll read two or three verses beyond that. <clears throat> because when Jesus says there, do not judge, he then, almost in the same breath, tells his disciples to judge in three different ways. He said, uh, you'll know these people by their fruit. Well, how are you going to know them? Well, you have to judge their fruit. Well, how are you going to judge the fruit if it's what you don't do what Jesus just, just said? Yeah. <clears throat> he says, beware of false prophets. 
Well, folks, if you're going to be aware of a false prophet, you've got to judge which one's a false prophet and which one's not. So whatever Jesus meant there, he didn't mean that in all instances of judging, you're, you're being sinful. He went right on to tell you what he was talking about. He said, I'm talking about this kind of judging, that you've got a log in your eye and you're trying to get the splinter out of somebody else's. That's the kind that's wrong. Okay? Uh, that's the kind of don't, ju don't judge somebody's sin if yours is even worse than theirs. And here's what's interesting. People say, well, you're not supposed to be concerned about the splinter in their eye. That is not what Jesus said. Hmm. He said, get the, the log out of your eye so that you can see to get it out of theirs. <laughs> okay? He didn't say don't be concerned about others. And the only way you can tell them is to tell them this is wrong. <clears throat> and so that's just what I call the devil's favorite Bible verse. If he's got a favorite Bible verse, it's that one that says, don't judge. I don't know the exact verse, but if you'll read all, and it won't hurt you to do it, so I'll tell you. Read all of John chapter 7. What you will find in there is Jesus saying, judge. That, that's it. He says, judge. It's in the imperative in the Greek. So when somebody says, Jesus said over here, don't judge. I said, well, over here he said to judge. So which one are we supposed to do? You're supposed to read it in its context and figure out. And if you do, you'll find out the one where he says don't judge is not an absolute statement never to judge or you're wrong. That's a verse that the devil likes to use anytime his works are getting ready to be exposed. And it too often works as a uh, conversation stopper because most Christians hear that and they say, I have no idea how to respond to that. Because they just quoted to me the words of Jesus. Mm -hmm. No, they didn't. They just misquoted to you mm -hmm. the words of Jesus to their own advantage. So that's right. what I'd. Great. Thank you. So, last question your way, Mike. <laughs> the, um... What's the first book in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Revelation. Oh, he got all the easy ones. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I've talked about here in our church is a growing, uh, growing concern and burden that I have that we're losing uh, the rising generation, uh, primarily from uh, the, you know, out the, the, the world's influence that has just phenomenally grown, especially with social media and things like that. So what, what are some key things, and it's kind of in line with the parents, but as a church, what are the key things that we need to be honing in on, focusing in on to reach the next generation? Families, intentional discipleship, that is inclusive of evangelism. Um, a family that says their daughter is good at volleyball and is going to play club all spring at the expense of church attendance every week for three months says something to that kid mm -hmm. and to the church. I, I think that the family needs education spiritually about being a family mm. <clears throat> and what that means and it's kind of a point I'm going to make tonight <laughs> of integrating the church and the family with the intentional discipleship one of the weaknesses of youth ministry today in my humble opinion is youth pastors who claim what they call discipleship is 
after they speak, they put kids in small groups for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and have discussion time about his talk. And they call that discipleship. I call that a nice discussion time. But it's not discipleship. And intentional life on life investment that teaches them how to be a disciple maker, which biblically, theologically includes sharing the gospel and then helping that person grow and become a disciple maker themselves so that it repeats itself rather than stops. Um, um, I cut my teeth in youth ministry in towns like Gaffney. And there's a culture that says you do what small town is about. And that means you go to the prom and you go to homecoming and everybody goes to Friday night football and everybody does this, this, and this. And if there's anything left, the church gets some. <laughs> That's backwards, as my granny said. But that's predominant in my experience and contemporaneously. Uh, I'm a grandparent. I've done 15 interim youth pastor gigs since I've been at North Greenville in the 20 years. I did 24 years of church youth ministry. I'm telling you, that is a predominant problem that needs the Shema to address that mom and dad are the primary disciples of their kids and it starts there with us teaching them that we, we can't neglect the worshiping of God's people together and, and get off the screen and get in person. <clears throat> Corollary, technology and doing this all the time means you don't do this. Students don't know how to do an interview. They don't know how to sit and talk. But they, boy, they know how to hide behind a screen and say things and bully and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't know how to communicate because we've been allowed to have an idol. And I don't want to say any more because that's what I'm talking about tonight. <laughs> right. But it ought to be clear to you if you know someone who God has called into youth ministry you ought to have a pretty good idea of where they need to be doing some study. <laughs> Mr. Landrum That's is right. right on it. Right. Shoot, we'd be taking them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you guys so much for uh, spending your Saturday afternoon with us. Let's give them a hand of thanks.